Hey everyone, it's Jalian. Many schools have started hybrid, in-person, and online learning, even though coronavirus cases keep rising, and we're still figuring out how to address disparities in how students access technology, meet their daily needs, and learn at home. Sometimes, the burden of figuring out how to navigate these disparities falls on young people who are the first in their family to pursue higher education. Maria Anaya Pintor is a first-generation college student who stepped in to help parents and families in her community adjust to remote learning when the pandemic first hit St. Louis. A lot of the people in my neighborhood are like Hispanic, Latino, and their kids were left without anything. And sometimes there isn't good communication between the schools and the parents, mostly because they don't have enough translators. So I stepped in and I helped them like get their technology and help them set up the hotspots and taught the kids and the parents, you know, kind of how to navigate it, I guess. <laughs> um, everything. So if they needed me again, you know, I could be there to help. But so they understood it in such a way that they could do this every single day until, you know, the semester ended or uh, once, you know, we rolled into fall and if we continued having to be remote, they understood how the whole process went. From a young age, Maria has been interested in education. My mom would start taking us to Sunday school when I was like 12 every single Sunday. And um, at a point I started being like the Sunday school teacher helper and then part-time like oh, the teacher's not here, I'll just lead the session myself or something like that. And when I was <laughs> when I was young too, like all I would do to make extra cash was like, oh, we're out of school, it's summertime, bring your kids to me and I'll babysit. And, um, you know, and anything I could ever do usually revolved around younger kids helping out. But her parents, like many of the parents in her neighborhood, didn't have much of an educational background. A lot of the parents here in in where I live, a, a lot of people can't read or write. And, you know, they migrated here from um, really poor places and now they fully dip on their children. Like my mom, when I was 10, 12 years old, you know, having to translate legal documents and stuff like that, my mom did not, I think her oldest grade was probably like the equivalent of like middle school here. I don't even think my dad went to college. I don't have, I don't know much about him, but I, I think he was like in a small town, you know, the kids there taught themselves and stuff like that. I don't think he went past middle school. Maria was the first child in her neighborhood to attend Mason Elementary, a neighborhood school that is now known for its racial and ethnic diversity, active parent-teacher organization, and arts curriculum. And when she found herself dissatisfied with the learning option at her own middle school, she took matters into her own hands by setting up a tour for herself at a local visual performing arts school. And I went and took a tour there, and like my mom and I just didn't understand enough about how to apply there, what would be different, the, you know, all the, um, all the data from the school or anything. So I stayed at my middle school and then I went on to Gateway STEM. Like it's a STEM school that focuses on science, technology. But I think my focus is lied more in performing arts or art, dance, stuff like that. And I think I, I, as a kid, I would have enjoyed more going to school 
where that was celebrated. Nonetheless, her experience with navigating the St. Louis Public Schools, or SLPS system, paved the way for other kids in her neighborhood, who later went to the elementary and middle schools she attended. I would definitely say that the, the kids I, I helped out now would be the first to graduate college. And part of, you know, everything I want to do is, like, make sure that they follow through and, like, continue their education or, like, find a um, higher you know, continue educating themselves. In this area, I was one of the first who migrated here. And um, I was one of the first kids who went off to like SLPS. And, you know, when they, when I first started, they didn't have like school buses or anything that came to this area. So it was kind of the whole process of being the first to do everything here. And I want to, you know, keep helping the kids here to also, you know, follow along in my footsteps or whatever. I graduated high school in 2017 from Gateway STEM, you know, St. Louis Public Schools. And I did not have my green card yet. I didn't qualify for DACA. So um, I had to, I, had, I knew I, if, if, I knew if we got our green card, the first thing I would do would, you know, start college and everything. So I had to wait three years until I could. And I'm now in my first year of college. I'm a freshman at Webster. And um, there were so many (laughs) things I wanted to uh, study. I started off um, as a journalism major and then changed it halfway to film and television production. And now I'm going to study education. Her hope is that kids in her neighborhood will be encouraged by her example to also pursue higher education or attend a vocational school. The parents and guardians in her neighborhood also share that hope, but education can feel out of reach, especially for young people who feel the weight of adult responsibilities earlier than later. That a lot of people come here with really young kids and um, when, when a lot of Hondurans, people from El Salvador, were migrating here, there was a special, like a special act in place that their children would be able to get their green cards as long as they continued their education. And a lot of kids didn't want to. They said, well, I came here, they're like 16, 17. They don't know English. They didn't study a lot in their country. And when they come here, and they have the option to have a green card and live here, like, fully, you know, legally, um, it's kind of hard for them because, like, they think, I came here to make money. I came here to help my little brothers and sisters who are back home. I can't just study. So um, I think that was a big thing where I was translating for certain Honduran families here. And as someone who's kind of their peer and kind of, like, one step ahead, like um, talking to them about how important it is and how like many more opportunities you could have, you know, if you just take the time to finish high school to graduate and stuff like that. And, you know, I think parents just want like a better life for their kids. The additional challenges of learning through a pandemic can be even more discouraging. There's this one family and uh, the mom can't um, read or write 
and um, it's it's you know really difficult for her to communicate. And WhatsApp has like the little option where you just speak. So any messages she just sends me are always like spoken word, and she speaks like another dialect. And English, uh, Spanish is her second language, so even her Spanish is a little broken. But her daughter, she is like a sophomore in high school, I think, right now. And this past summer, she just she wanted to give up. She didn't want to go back to school. She wanted to go start working and because she has brothers and sisters back home. And like, I don't know, just spending time with her was, was a lot because I'm like, I feel like I need to help her. I need, um, she, I feel like she's my responsibility now. You know, I, I, she can't just stop her education I know like her brothers and sisters need her but she could do so much more if she just like three more years you know I see potential in her and I see her you know the way she treats other people and I feel like other people have potential in me and that's why I I can be where I am now and I feel like if if other people had it maybe I would have given up a long time ago. And I think she just needs that extra push to know that like she can do more. And I, I believe in her. A former teacher of Maria's noticed her commitment to helping students in her community and encouraged her to apply for a job as a bilingual school navigator at a local education-based nonprofit called Navigate STL Schools. She applied and got the job, which involves helping students and families make sense of their educational options, keep track of deadlines, and manage applications. I felt kind of underqualified, and I felt um, a little like, well, I'm way out of my league. This is like an actual job, and my co-navigators, like, they, they look like they know what they're doing, and I'm just like, I'm just started college, like, I don't. Um, am I really the right person for this job? And um, our manager, I guess, uh, Myra, she gave us an assignment and it was like, what questions should you ask, should parents ask when they're um, touring a school? And I'm like, oh, I don't know what to do. And um, I just started it and it was so easy. Like I just, the questions just filled out themselves. I translated and I'm like, oh my God, I, I can totally do this. Maria has the first-hand experience that makes her an ideal school navigator, but the school application process presents additional challenges for families in her neighborhood. The language barrier is always the biggest, the biggest problem. And as a navigator, my job is to like help them understand their options. Like my job is not to go with them to the schools and translate for them, help them out with the paperwork. And that's what um, scares me the most that because of the language barrier, even though they now know they have these options, they won't pursue them further. I know SLPS does now have a few translators, but I wish they were more, they communicated more. They, they let parents know that they have a voice as well and their opinion matters. And it's not just, this is the way it is and you have to deal with it. You know, I wish um, there were more like, outreach programs with the schools. I feel like just the thought that I am helping someone else or making someone else's process easier is, you know, helpful. I also journal a lot and um, <laughs> I feel like I, before, um, I wasn't doing it enough and I'm like starting to get into it more now and I think it's really important for like mental health and like to make sure I'm not just 
as frustrated as the families are all the time because I need to come to them in a much, you know, in a patient manner where I can help them understand everything. Maria is passionate about her work as a school navigator, but acknowledges that without larger changes to the education system, families in her neighborhood will remain feeling stuck and discouraged about the schooling options available to their children and the obstacles they face toward accessing them. And there are larger systemic factors that have resulted in the fragmented, inequitable educational landscape that she must navigate today. So in this episode, we'll hear from the executive director of Navigate STL Schools to get a closer look at what parents and families face when navigating the St. Louis public school system and how that impacts students' experiences with higher education. And then we'll zoom all the way out to examine why St. Louis's educational landscape remains uneven and segregated over six decades after the Brown versus Board of Education decision. From St. Louis Public Radio and PRX, this is We Live Here. Maria is part of a team of navigators helping St. Louis area families access better educational opportunities for their children. But I want to introduce you to the person who is training those navigators and finding ways to assess and meet the needs of St. Louis area families on a larger scale. Anastasia Allen, or Stacy, was born and raised in Toledo, Ohio. Her love for education started early. Everybody in my family will tell you that I came out with teeth and reading the newspaper. And it was just like this thing, like I've heard these stories since I was a child. Nobody has ever differed or changed details. Like I was two months old, sitting on my grandfather's lap, reading the newspaper and like my eyes were moving and I changed the page back when he changed it. And at that point, my father bought me Hooked on Phonics and he made my mother do Hooked on Phonics with me every day. And because he worked at Chrysler, he was on like third shift. And so he would like come stare at me in my crib and then go to work. And then I would be at home making animal sounds and reading books and all this stuff. And that was really important because I had a late birthday. I had to start school late. And I was still kind of like the oldest person in my class because, you know, born in November. Everything up to that point indicated that Stacy would excel in school. But in second grade, her teachers said otherwise. And so in second grade, I would continuously get sent home from school, have my parents call, the office call. And my teacher told uh, my parents that I was a behavior child, that I might have ADHD, that I wasn't doing well in school. And so my parents came and they sat in on a class. And that is kind of essentially when they were just like, nah, she's not bad. She's bored. Like the person that you're describing isn't our child. And the work that you're giving her is work that she's been doing for at this point years. And she doesn't feel challenged here. And so that's when I was tested for gifted and talented. And I think from there, my life kind of changed a lot. She was placed in a program which allowed her to join other children who were just as excited as she was to be challenged academically. She joined those kids once a week, and on the other days, she received fourth and fifth grade level work while remaining in her second grade class. That was kind of how I viewed education, that 
everywhere that I went, I was going to be different. I was going to be doing things different than other kids. I was going to be like, I'm smarter than other kids. And so all through junior high and high school, I did AP classes, honors classes. I graduated high school a year early. She ended up with the highest grade point average in her school and was rewarded with a full academic scholarship to Ohio State as part of a program for first-generation college students from inner-city areas in Ohio. She and her new friends in the program were optimistic at first, but were quickly hit with the reality that their previous schooling hadn't adequately prepared them for college. And we get to Ohio State, and I will never forget this day in my life. It was, we were still on quarters back then. And so it's winter quarter, and we're in um, what's called a suite. So 10 of us lived in the same room, and six of us had come in in the same scholarship program. And we all just looked at each other, and we sat in the middle of the circle, and we cried. And it's like midterms week and we're sitting there and we're crying and we're all in tears. And it was just like, we used to be smart. What happened? So the first semester, it was just like, oh, okay, well, we don't know how to study for college. We'll get this together. The next semester, it was very much, yeah, we about to fail. Like, what is going on? I've never gotten a C in my life. Like, how do I build my identity around this like this is like a crisis like what is happening here why are we stupid who set us up and we all had this same the same like moment and we all started talking about just our experiences being these gifted and talented black girls and everybody telling us we were so great and we were so smart and then getting into college and feeling not prepared because nobody challenged us because we were the smart kids. And it wasn't like we weren't smart, it's just we were not prepared for that academic rigor because nobody had ever challenged us because it was just like, you're smart enough to figure it out. Many of the scholarship students she started college with didn't graduate, but Stacy did. She began working for Ohio State in diversity programming, helping black students and students of color get through college. But the students she worked with shared similar stories about why they also didn't feel prepared for college and wanted to leave. I'm starting to understand all this and realize this. And I'm like, okay, so what is actually happening is there's nobody in the community teaching inner city kids, rural kids, kids that come from these non-academic families what it means to actually be in college, what it means to be a good academic. And so people weren't going home because they were failing. People were going home because the rent is due and your little sister don't got no shoes and, you know, ain't no groceries in the house and your grandmama is sick and nobody else can take care of her because so-and-so got kids. And it wasn't ever academics that sent people home. It was always these extra communal activities. These stories struck a chord with Stacy, who had put off her own dream of going to graduate school in order to care for her mother and sister who had lupus. My sister got diagnosed with lupus when she was 12 years old. I diagnosed my sister with lupus. So my mother got diagnosed when, she, when I was six. And she has these rashes and she would always be sick and tired. And so when I was six years old, I kind of got shoved into like this very adult role in my family. I did not go to like a sleepover or anything. It's like I was in high school um, because I learned to cook and clean and do my hair and do my sister's hair and still be a student and all these other things and make sure my mother took her medication and all this, all this stuff, keeping track of doctor's appointments and all this like stuff that no six-year-old should be doing, but I did it because I could. And 
I was the oldest. The more she understood what Black students continue to face in getting a quality education and how she was personally impacted by those same obstacles, the more passionate she became about being part of the solution. And that's kind of how I ended up in St. Louis, very much in love with Nellie. It's always a place that I wanted to be. It was like, okay, I'm going to go here. This is going to be a great place. I'm so excited. It just looks so great in all the music videos. So in 2015, without knowing much else about the St. Louis region, she moved to work as a teen outreach program coordinator for AmeriCorps in the majority black city of East St. Louis, Illinois. And I thought I grew up poor. I thought that I grew up in, in a low-income city. And being in East St. Louis, it taught me a lot about K-12 education. It taught me a lot about power dynamics. It taught me a lot about funding and community grit and all of those things. That experience strengthened her belief in investing real dollars into students, teachers, and mentors who are passionate about improving education in their own communities. But then, her sister experienced a lupus flare-up. She had insurance in Texas, she had a doctor in Texas, and her moving to Missouri wasn't really an option because Missouri didn't have open enrollment for health insurance. And so it was like, okay, well, I need to go there because you have insurance there, you have doctors there. And so I moved to Dallas. She found work in Texas as a school director for a computer science school in a majority white suburb called McKinney. I learned about money which I had no idea about. I grew up poor, I worked in poor communities. I'm this champion for disenfranchised people because I have been disenfranchised and then automatically I am thrown into many mansions and moms who don't have jobs and drive Mercedes trucks and whose children deserve everything. And this is like literally an extracurricular program at this point. They're paying $250 minimum a month for their kid to go to eight sessions a week for a computer class. And it was like, okay, I'm, I'm here and I'm leaving a community where $250 a month could really change somebody's life. According to the most recent census data, in East St. Louis, Illinois, the median household income is around $23,000 a year, whereas in McKinney, Texas, it's closer to $90,000. Over a third of East St. Louis residents live in poverty, whereas that figure is closer to 7% in McKinney. Housing values are drastically different too, with the median value of owner-occupied homes being around $52,000 in East St. Louis. But homes in McKinney are valued five times more. And those class differences play out in education, with a little over a tenth of East St. Louis residents 25 years and older having college degrees, but closer to 46% for McKinney residents of the same age. It's also worth noting that the same equity gaps exist for access to technology and the internet. Between 2014 and 2018, in East St. Louis, a little over half of households had a computer and less than half had internet access. Whereas in McKinney, around 97% of households had a computer and around 89% had internet access. And so I had to learn how to interact within school districts, how to talk to wealthy parents and start to understand some of the things that they cared about. And so 
part of me taking that job was that the owners were this really great Indian couple and they were going to let me start programs for minority children in STEAM and I could give away scholarships to like summer camps, which really made me happy because like, okay, I'm still being able to bridge the equity gap. But in 2017, just before Christmas, her sister had a stroke right in front of her. And this is kind of the moment where like my whole life shifted. And so she was in rehab for uh, two and a half months. She we spent Christmas and New Year's that year in the hospital, Valentine's Day. Uh, my mom came, we broke her out. Uh, the last movie that we went to go see together was Black Panther, because that's the weekend that she had come home from, from the hospital. And okay. That was it. That was it. It was like, okay, so this is it. This was the worst of it. It's going to be fine. Um, in July of 2018, she died. After her sister died, Stacy tried to keep it together. And then in July of 2019, like, I just had like a whole nervous breakdown. I was like, I am not in a job that I am passionate about. I am not working with a community that I am passionate about. I don't have my sister. I don't have my best friend. I am in Texas. All of my family is in Ohio. I feel disconnected from everybody and everything. Like, I, at that point, I had cried maybe three times since my sister died. And almost all of them were literally within a month of her death. Like, I had just not cried. I had not processed anything. And so in the most weird turn of events, I'm like watching The Lion King. And it's just like, you know, the part where Mufasa is telling Simba, like, you have to like, do what you are meant to do and all this stuff. And so I sat in the parking lot after watching the live action Lion King with Beyonce and she's all like female empowerment and you can do this and all this jazz. And it's just like, I sat in my car and I cried for two hours and I'm like, I'm not happy. Like I have to figure out how to change my life. I have to figure out how to start doing something that means something, how to, how to be passionate about something again. She quit her job in Texas and moved back to Ohio, where she decided to move to St. Louis for a second time to work in education again. This is what I want to do. I want to help kids become more invested in their education. I want to contribute to a community that I feel like elevates me and that I can also elevate. I want to be at the forefront of changing the trajectory of people's life. I want to empower people to help themselves. One night at 3 a.m., she was scrolling through job postings when she stumbled across the description for an executive director position at an education-based nonprofit. If I had the opportunity of someone giving me personally a half million dollars and saying, design a nonprofit, this would almost pretty much align with what I would have done for myself. Um, because I like what I learned in working at Ohio State, what I learned in working in McKinney, what I learned in working in East St. Louis is that I was not smarter than any of those kids around me. Like, and even the gifted, talented kids aren't necessarily smarter or more capable of learning than any of the other kids. It's just that somewhere in that process, somebody told them that they were good enough. Somebody gave them the tools to understand how to do this better. I know so many mechanics and artists who will tell you, oh, I'm just not good at math, or I'm not good at reading, or I wasn't good at school. And you look at what they're able to do and what they're able to create, and it's just like, you are so smart and just Nobody ever told you that. The nonprofit was Navigate STL Schools, which began as a resource created by a group of parents in St. Louis. 
St. Louis's education system is broken because of classism, because of racism, because of policy and politics. And in 2014, this group of family advocates or this group of parents, honestly, they were just like, hey, I want to know where to send my kids. And I don't want it to be because my cousin's baby mama's third cousin's wife said that this was the place that we should go. Like, where is the empirical data? Where is the test scores? Where are the extracurricular activities? Like, what happens in these buildings? The parents compiled a resource to answer these questions and help themselves assess which schools might be a good fit for their children. Eventually, their children aged out of the school system, and this resource landed in the hands of St. Louis area education advocates. And city advocates came in, they started building resources around it. They started compiling data, getting test scores, talking to schools, just putting everything in one place. Um, And then realizing, hey, um, okay, this is going to be hard for parents to understand. How do we make it accessible? And then they were like, all right, Stacey, figure out these problems. Boom. Like literally that was the point where I came in. Navigate STL Schools is partly a website with a school finder tool for parents and guardians to search for information such as school priorities, testing and enrollment deadlines. But it's also a service that matches families with navigators like Maria Pintor, who you met at the top of the show. And those navigators share Stacy's commitment to bridging educational equity gaps because they've often experienced those gaps firsthand. During the interview process for our school navigators, I got to hear the stories of a lot of people who were interested in doing this work and were happy that this organization existed. And I met a woman named Carmen Ward, and she has a special needs son. And she has been doing this work and not being paid for other parents for almost 17 years helping them figure out how to get the best services for their kids and fighting for her son to be treated like a regular student and to be able to learn basic life skills and to be able to take care of itself and not be mistreated in a school building. And she has taken that personal mission all the way to Jefferson City and (laughs) to help other parents be able to advocate for their special needs kids. In addition to ensuring that children and families get the individualized attention that they need, navigators also empower parents and guardians to speak up as the educational landscape continues to change through the pandemic. I can't tell anybody what a good school is. I can't tell anybody what the best school in St. Louis is because I think different kids just have different needs and they just learn so differently. And and it's this this other thing that the world is changing. Like the world is so different. Like even from 2019, where the city advocates came in and started building this platform to April when the website launched, the world was a completely different place because of COVID and everything is just changing so fast. And so when you look at education, is your education system keeping up? Is your school still teaching your kid like they're going to be an assembly line worker or are they teaching your kid like they're going to be an entrepreneur and an innovator? Stacy explains that the pandemic has heightened the urgency of moving to a new era of education, one where educational inequities are addressed and students receive equal opportunities to reach their fullest potential. I think it looks like magnet schools not being a thing. 
Um, I think it looks like all schools within the city of St. Louis offering advanced mathematics. I think it looks like every kid having uh, a laptop and internet connectivity, regardless of their neighborhood. I think it looks like individualized learning plans for students uh, that are based in standardized education, but not like how to pass a test. It's in a way that it doesn't take education 17 years to make one change, which we know is happening now, um, where the textbooks in minority communities, low SES communities, are not still current up until Bush era politics or like Bush presidencies. Um, I think that it looks like a place where kids are happy and well taken care of and adjusted and teachers are properly compensated for their work and school buildings look more like college campuses where kids feel invested and involved in their education and don't think school is a punishment. But in the short term, addressing educational inequities means adjusting to the realities of the pandemic in a way that doesn't leave poor black and brown students behind, while pods of white, wealthier students receive private tutoring for $30 to $70 an hour. In the pandemic, do your teachers and your building administrators make way for family needs? Like, is it important that your child gets on Zoom every morning at 9.05, even though you have five other kids that you need to get ready and have online and they're sharing several devices? Do your schools make exceptions for that? And these are all things that I think that before people hadn't really thought about. It was just like, we have to fit into the system or we're the broken ones. But honestly, the system is broken. And so when parents feel like they have the power to change that, I think that it the only thing that can happen is that school systems are going to have to adapt and adjust, which is ultimately going to make them better. As a parent, you know what is best for your child. As an invested community member, you know what it takes for your community to be successful. And at the end of the day, there is no education system without kids, without pupils, without students, without families and communities. And so if there is something that you want, you deserve it and you should have it and you should not be afraid to fight for it. To equip parents and guardians with the information they need to advocate for their children, Navigate STL focuses on informing St. Louis area families of their schooling options, as well as the testing and application deadlines they need to meet. When you are dealing with families who are in low SDS communities or minority communities, if I just put my kid in school, it is very unlikely that I am thinking about where, where they're, like, what happens next year. And so what happens is you start seeing families looking too late. Like magnet schools, magnet elementary schools are predominantly white because a teacher hasn't identified a, a black or brown kid early enough to say, hey, you should go get gifted and talented tested in order to apply for this thing for next year. And so you don't see an increase in diversity in those schools until you get to junior high um, in high school. 
And so you have all of these kids who are being under challenged in their standard schools because they, their parents haven't been able to meet the deadlines or get the resources together that they needed to have their kids tested to be in these programs at elementary. Um, and so one of the things that we hope to do is to bring light to that so that more parents have more opportunity to apply earlier to these lotteries and to these programs so that they could be in these quote unquote choice seats. Um, the next thing that we hope to do is that even if your kid misses this program by one point, how do you get the school that they're in to create programs that are going to challenge them? Like, there's no reason that St. Louis City High Schools outside of Magnet Choice High Schools don't offer calculus. So as a parent, how do you pressure your school board or your school administration to make sure that even if they're not at these choice schools, that they have access to advanced curriculum? I think that's the only thing that parents need to understand is that your kid is not broken because they don't fit into the system. Your kid is not broken because they don't learn like other kids learn. Your kid is not broken because they need additional help. And so I think that a, a lot of what prevents parents from even wanting to ask these questions or wanting to say that they're not in the best environment or that this school system isn't working is because they think that it is going to mean that something is wrong with their kid or they're going to be put on an IEP or they're going to be reprimanded for being different and I think that if we can build an education system that doesn't penalize different kids for not fitting the status quo then that's the first step and that's the only thing that parents need to know is that the individual quirk of your kid the individual thing that your kid needs is valuable and it does make them special and you can't advocate for that. We asked Stacy what difference it would have made if her family had a resource like Navigate STL Schools when she was a child. Honestly, I think that I might have a PhD by now, honestly. I think that somebody would have taught me how to study. Somebody would have challenged me academically and and when I got to college, that challenge wouldn't have been so scary and it would not have shaken my identity. I think that I would have gotten out of my head a lot earlier that being smart was this, this thing that made me better than everybody else and started to think a lot earlier about how I can affect change. The thing that carries me is that I was the kid, like I wasn't the parent, I was the kid that needed somebody to advocate for me, that didn't have a voice, that didn't know the words, that didn't know exactly what I needed, but knew that I needed something more. I don't want kids to be trapped and voiceless in an education system that they don't love and start to hate it and start to resent it. And so that's what really pushes me forward. Like I, in a very selfish way, am fighting for my inner child. I'm fighting for my future children. I am fighting for all of the kids that just, I just don't think that education should be for academics only. And academia should be seen as like this bougie upper class, not, not culturally competent thing. And that is, that is kind of my personal plight because learning is so fun. <laughs> like, learning is so fun. And I, like, I say that in the most nerdy way, but like, it really is. 
one person can spark a flame one person can be the uprising one person can be the change and it doesn't have to affect a million people if this one person steps up and is the change for their family then they have been advocated for then we have made a difference then they know how to use their voice and they can use and wield that power however they want to every day stacy and her team of navigators at navigate stl schools empower parents and guardians to access better educational opportunities for their children in doing so they pick up the pieces for a fragmented, inequitable education system by advocating for teachers and school administrators to support the full potential of low-income Black and Brown students across St. Louis. But there are systemic factors contributing to ongoing inequities in education, from how education is financed to the ways that housing policies perpetuate segregation, to the disparities in teacher pay and course offerings across schools. So up next, we'll hear from a racial equity strategist and a data researcher about how they are building a tool to better understand and transform the educational landscape of St. Louis. More than 60 years after Brown versus Board of Education, the education system in St. Louis is still separate and still unequal. That's a statement from the Still Separate, Still Unequal website, a community accountability and advocacy tool that was recently released by Ford through Ferguson, an organization that emerged from the work of the Ferguson Commission, which was tasked with charting a path towards social and economic change for the St. Louis region. We were getting ready to conduct our annual State of St. Louis uh, project, which is our update on regional progress made to implement the calls to action. And at Community Direction this year, that project is going to focus on the education reform calls to action. That's Karishma Furtado, lead author of Still Separate, Still Unequal, and Ford through Ferguson's Data and Research Catalyst. And we realized in gearing up for that tool, that report, the, st the State of St. Louis tool, that we didn't have a good baseline understanding of what was going on in the education space in the region. Don't get me wrong, we have plenty of reports that talk to us about outcomes, traditional conventional outcomes pertaining to achievement, and lots of reports that also show entrenched racial disparities in those outcomes. So the graduation rate gap, the achievement gap, the summer slide, the discipline gap, all of these um, pithy terms that we've come up with to conceptualize this pattern that we see year after year. But what was missing in our assessment was a sense of why those gaps keep showing up and understanding that why was pivotal to understanding why the commission's calls to action in the education reform space were so and are so important. David Dwight IV, the executive director of Ford through Ferguson, suggests that a comprehensive tool for understanding and taking action on the causes of educational inequities is overdue. Back in 2015, a Ferguson Commission working group engaged hundreds of community members in studying the region's educational inequities. They really found at the end that we needed to go upstream. We needed to move from those outcome gaps um, that Krishma just talked through um, and go upstream to the way that inequity is built into our structure and our history that very well informs our present. 
David adds that instead of blaming Black students and families for those outcome gaps, we can examine the upstream factors that contribute to those disparities and then identify systems and structures that need to change. Everybody knows these outcome disparities. What um, are the impacts from, of the educational environment on those outcomes? Right? When we're in a St. Louis where 43% of Black students don't have access to a calculus course, and one in four Black students don't have, have access to AP or calculus courses, um, where uh, administrators and teachers are paid significantly less in, blacks, in Black districts than they are in majority white districts. Um, and then let's go even farther upstream from there, right, and look at the ways that funding um, informs those realities and how schools are structured um, and the way our funding systems are set up. And then we have to go even farther upstream from that and look at then property taxes um, and the ways that development systems and how we disinvested in that history has, has informed funding and educational environments. And then even before that, segregation, right? Just the ways that we um, separate ourselves and live into these racial constructs and have previously built it um, de jure into the law um, and now de facto um, into, uh, and still as insidiously into the ways that our, our structures and our governments are, are set up, um, how all those things are what really deeply affect what we see on the surface and so we have to start getting to those root causes if we want to see significant um, effects. And so this report is all about how do we move towards transformation? How do we not just treat the symptom, but treat the cause? The Still Separate, Still Unequal report identifies four major upstream factors that contribute to the educational inequities that people like Maria and Stacy grapple with every day. Segregation, property taxes, funding, and education environment. It points out that St. Louis schools have gotten more segregated over the last three decades and are now about as segregated as schools across the country were before they moved to integrate. Bussing kids around is really a band-aid approach because the underlying issues there are right racial resentment and racist uh, ideas and mentalities. It's about our disinvestment. It's about our legal structures and our court structures. It's about housing systems. And so when we just scratch the surface and address a symptom um, or take an equality approach, it doesn't actually get to some of the deeper things. And I think true integration would involve a righting of past wrongs. The report says that in order for St. Louis area schools to integrate, seven out of 10 black or white students would need to move districts. And this would still fail to address other kinds of segregation. Housing segregation contributes to major disparities in property taxes, which are the largest source of local funding for school districts. And the report reveals that even though poor residents in majority black districts vote for higher property taxes than wealthier residents in majority white school districts, their revenues don't come close because housing values vary drastically across race. But Karishma says that other states have addressed this problem. We're seeing uh, models of uh, pooling local property taxes so that you don't see quite the same volatility, variability, I should say, um, from one school district to the other in terms of what they can raise at the local level. So there are better models for doing that um, out there for sure. Um, in interestingly, most of them are implemented in the South. 
um, because those that part of the country underwent such a, a, a much more um, legally mandated integration uh, process through like a legal structure. Uh, and some of that structure exists today. And, and we see that in um, the infrastructure that funds education. So uh, you see more inequity in funding generally um, in the North than relative to the South, which might run counter to what people expect. In Missouri, there's a state funding mechanism called the Foundation Formula, which determines how many dollars every school district gets in order to make up for gaps in local funding. Karishma explains that the Foundation Formula was revised in 2006 after legal challenges asserted that the past formula was inequitable. However, in building that foundation formula, several measures were left in that allowed school districts that were favored by the old formula to continue to use the old formula. These are called um, generally hold harmless provisions. Hold harmless measures keep a school district's funding from decreasing by allowing them to receive funds based on the old formula if the new formula would give them less funding of the two. So in 2019, for example, about a third of the school districts in the state were held harmless. Those measures preferentially shunt dollars to small or wealthy schools that quite literally wouldn't qualify for the dollars using the 2006, the most modern uh, version of the formula. And those are dollars that therefore can't go to the districts that need them the most. The foundation formula's reliance on attendance also contributes to inequities. Attendance seems like a, a very reasonable thing to base uh, funding on, which, yes, I can, I can see why that logically appeals. However, there are realities and for some students, students who struggle with um, poverty especially, who might be homeless, who uh, might struggle with hunger, reasons why they can't show up to school, right? And those, like I said, types of um, factors that, that tend to be associated with chronic absenteeism tend also to be highly concentrated in low-income majority Black school districts. So you see these attendance numbers dropping in majority Black school districts, and as a result, their funding also dropping. And it's this um, vicious cycle of not getting the dollars needed to provide the supports to students to allow them to show up and continue to, to coming to, to come to school, um, and that penalizing the school and leading to less funding. As a result, majority Black districts tend to rely more heavily on state funding than majority white districts, but still end up with less to spend per student. The report drives home this point by noting that Missouri is one of two states that spends the least amount of funding toward education in the country. There are also major disparities in private funding. What comes from non-public funds, um, which booster clubs uh, and other forms of auxiliary support of districts, um, can be huge sources of funding in a lot of majority white districts, um, but we weren't able to track those uh, in this tool because they're not as consistently or clearly reported. Funding disparities then contribute to differences in educational environments. Teachers and administrators at majority black school districts tend to be paid less than their counterparts at majority white school districts. The report notes that this is partly because teachers and administrators at majority white districts tend to have more experience and advanced degrees. 
but this also means that teachers in majority black districts are more likely to be in their first year of teaching and less likely to be equipped to teach AP courses. That translates into fewer opportunities to develop the full potential of black students in the St. Louis region and leads to the experiences that Stacy shared with us earlier of not being challenged enough in school and later feeling unprepared in college. Some of these systems of oppression that have been um, exerting such a horrid toll on our student, our black students, predominantly um, in the education system, have also been hurting low-income white students as well. If you look at the numbers for Melville, for Bayless, for Lindbergh, they look a lot more like the numbers in terms of funding and expenditure uh, for Normandy Riverview Gardens Jennings than they do for like a, a Brentwood, Clayton, Ledoux. So the, the, these systems of, of oppression work, work together and um, there's overlap in, in agendas and in, this isn't just a, a, a black um, white issue in that regard. The pandemic has created a follow-on crisis that exposes even more families to the flaws in our existing education system. While all families are experiencing a crisis now in the COVID-19 pandemic for a lot of Black families um, and low-income families in St. Louis and in Missouri, there's been an ongoing crisis for generations, spanning back 40 years at minimum, um, if not more. And so... Definitely as the pandemic was beginning in, in earnest in March and April, um, we were doing other efforts to do some of the first disaggregated by race looks at how the pandemic were affecting St. Louisans in their economic life, in, in, in education, um, in their health, of course. Um, and in the education space, I think a lot of the things that we're seeing today, the struggle for some schools that don't have as much resources as others to meet the needs of their students in this virtual, semi-virtual um, environment are deeply, again, tied to these structural inequities that are tied to um, the ways that we allocate resources across our communities, the ways that development does and does not happen across communities, how disinvestment plays out. Um, and so if we really want to transform St. Louis so we don't have these ongoing crises and, and waves of crises, how do we get to the root cause um, and invest in our kids like they need to be? David reminds us that an equity lens should be central as we look toward recovering from coronavirus and the recession. Something that I think a lot is about is recovery for whom. And if we know that all of our systems of aid, of education, of housing, of transportation have had these disproportionate, systemically racist effects in the past, what makes us think that when we employ them for the recovery, they'll be any different, especially as the health disparities and educational disparities have most deeply affected um, Black students, um, as we've seen both from experiences and in the, in the data. And so moving forward, we have to be pushing at those upstream um, root causes if we actually want to see a recovery that'll benefit um, all St. Louisans and to really recognize that we all have a stake in this. St. Louis can't recover when we're disinvesting in such a huge part of our region's kids and families um, that has such a direct, brutal impact on them and their opportunity to thrive in their life. And ultimately, it hurts the entire region. 
um, because of that brilliance and talent that's not being nurtured um, and will ultimately hurt our economy. The failure to nurture the full potential of low-income Black students and to fix the housing policies that have devalued Black homes come at a real cost to the St. Louis region. In 2016, our region lost three-quarters of a billion dollars, $750 million nearly, in regional income due to racial disparities in college education. We estimate that we lost a approximate $9 billion of wealth because of home ownership gaps. And it's, it's hard to perfectly quantify these um, numbers because they overlap and interact with one another in complex ways. But the point is that we're leaving vast amounts of, of money and, and um, resources on the table when we um, fail to correct for these uh, problems in our education system. And to David's point about really needing to be intentional about applying an equity lens to recovery and thinking about recovery for whom, we have a lot of evidence um, from the 2008 mortgage crisis that points to what happens when um, that to whom question is not um, fully considered. We saw recovery for some parts of the population. We saw a black population that was just barely starting to pull out of that when COVID hit. And now we're, we're going to see massive uh, losses in homeownership, in wealth accumulation, in, in job security, et cetera, um, because of, of COVID. So the, the proof is in our past of what happens when we don't think about um, how to build recovery systems that meet people where they are and that anticipate how things can go wrong based on what we know from how they've gone in the past. There are opportunities right now that are, are uniquely available because of everything else that's swirling. Um, and that this was an area, education reform was an area uh, that was becoming more accessible because of you know this concept of, of interest convergence that comes to us from, from Derek Bell's idea that when the pain that has been in our system so long but felt disproportionately by black students and their families is now also being felt by white students and their families um, that a, a unique window of opportunity to make radical change and start having a new conversation uh, becomes available. More white people are realizing how dehumanizing it is for themselves to live into like the construct of whiteness and all the real effects that has on on power and structure in St. Louis. Like we we obviously know the ways that racism dehumanizes people of color and leads to a lot of racial trauma as well as real material harm to them in terms of physical harm as as well as. Um, economic, etc. Um, and I think white people in St. Louis, we've seen definitely another wave of that after the killing of George Floyd and Nina Pop and Breonna Taylor, that white people are also starting to see the ways that they've given up some of their humanity to be a part of the way our society is structured right now. Um, and actually some of that realization is, is heartening and, and speaks to what Christian was talking about, about we have come somewhere in the last six years since the killing of Michael Brown and the creation of Ferguson Christian Report and the Ferguson Uprising. Um, and it's a base on which we can move towards bolder action. As people in the streets call for social structures to be transformed, people like David and Karishma are outlining the precise changes that can move society toward racial equity. This status quo causes a lot of volatility and a lot of chaos locally too. 
um, the way that we're so fragmented um, and the way that that state formula is, is set up, um, leaving all of those back doors um, really pushes so much of the weight of these societal issues of like, are we going to educate our kids onto parents and onto individual families who have to make really tough choices in this chaotic fragmented landscape about what they will do for their kids. It kind of forces the way that our system is currently set up, forces us to be in individualistic mindsets um, and forces families to be in this kind of like having to fight for your own uh, just to get a good education and quality and adequate education for our kids, which should be things that are guaranteed by the state uh, for something as central to our society as education. I think it starts with something that we talked about earlier. We don't have to worry about where we send our kids to school. You know, that, that decision is one that um, is sort of made for us based on where we live. This neighborhood school model um, is, is working for everyone. And we feel good about that. And we have that confidence in knowing that our kid, whatever they look like, uh, will go to a school that is equipped to care for them and nurture them as humans. And that's a that speaks to funding, but it speaks to a lot more than funding as well. It's, it speaks to uh, the underlying mental models that we have for education and how we build curricula and how we educate our, our students ultimately. So we're talking about and envisioning here like changing state constitution, like improving the foundation formula, like rethinking systems for gathering property tax dollars and infusing them into districts. These changes can have ripple effects for policing and public safety, which are at the center of demands emerging from the current uprising. When we asked St. Louisans across the city what they thought about public safety, their first thing wasn't just having more police around. It was about what opportunities their kids had. It was about these feelings of camaraderie and what it meant to uh, be in a St. Louis together. It meant things about with public health and access to healthcare, because I think inherently um, people know that what makes them feel safe deeply, the moments when they felt most safe have been moments when their needs have been met um, and they've had deep relationships and care. And so education is a, is a huge part of that. Um, and definitely think that, um, and it's one of Ford through Ferguson's priorities that um, regional governments start investing their public safety dollars in a more holistic manner, not seeing police um, as what's going to solve public safety. David and Karishma hope that people will use the still separate, still unequal tool to understand the upstream factors that contribute to the region's educational inequities and start building coalitions that can move statewide policy. It involves getting out of our common grooves of education fights that take up a lot of our attention and column space and uh, Facebook social media feed uh, space and start to get to those root issues um, to put our egos second and put the outcomes for all kids first, not just 100 kids here or 100 kids there, um, but really pushing ourselves to think about all kids 
redesign will also be about creating strong tables that we can come to together and see this as all of our um, job in accountability to the most impacted. So centering those voices and we're going to need the business community to come to the table. We're going to need elected officials that often kind of sit back from these kind of issues to come to the table. We'll of course need families there. We'll need developers. We'll need um, all of these systems to come together and say we are invested in doing things differently and we're willing to make sure the process is also product right, that we are living out of principles of racial equity and how we show up and, and making new decisions and setting a new culture because those patterns will ultimately impact outcomes for our kids. And they have some advice for everyday people who are ready and wondering how they can fit into the work of addressing educational inequities. There's a ton that can be done at the local and community level. And so part of it is building these organizing communities that care and are invested in these things. So bringing it up at PTA meetings, going to a, a local school board, school board meeting and seeing if they're um, actually talking about these structural issues um, across districts and at the state level. And then there's also uh, school board elections that will be coming up in the spring. And it's a huge opportunity to ask candidates for school board whether they're invested in equitable solutions moving forward and whether they're invested in transformation. Um, and I think there's also this big opportunity to build a vision for education equity, right? To reject the notion that this is how things always have to be um, and to build like a common definition um, within their local neighborhood or school community around how they want to live into education equity um, because those kind of grassroots commitments will uh, build up and ultimately um, help change the tide. So those are some of the like immediate in sphere of influence things that people can do. We interviewed Karishma and David less than a week before the general election, and they told us that what's carrying them through their work is their belief in humanity and their hope for transformation. There's a lot of history that shows us what we can do when we decide something is necessary. You know, we're in the depths of this COVID pandemic, and it has been brutal. And we've done some incredible things as a society, you know, the politics and nuance of it all aside, um, we've seen in the education system alone a shift to digital learning that if you'd asked educators and administrators a year ago would have seemed like blatantly impossible. You know, that's not to say that we've done it perfectly. We haven't by any means. Um, but the fact is that we did something huge and very um, difficult and, and challenging. Similarly, like with the election a couple days away, I try not to think about it too much in a lot of ways, but like, look at voter turnout. You know, we're we're going we're about to see a huge voter turnout that eclipses what we've seen in in past years, and that's amidst all the logistical hurdles uh, imposed by a global pandemic. Um, so I, I think that that we can do amazing things when we decide we need to, and it's about deciding we need to. So that's what what carries me through.
I think for me, two things. First is around just incredible people in St. Louis who have such passion and verve and resilience, which they shouldn't have to have, but have built up because of all that they've faced and just incredible vision. And it's hearing these patterns of a vision for a different St. Louis from so many people that gets me so energized because it's so clear that the potential exists for it to happen if only we can align ourselves in our power to get it accomplished. Um, and so that's one thing. And then the second thing um, is about intense moments of trauma and pain and that they also open up the greatest opportunities for transformation and maybe the hardest looks at ourselves to see the flaws to make different choices. Um, and we've seen that so much across history, these moments where sometimes we don't take that opportunity and sometimes we do take the opportunity. And I think about it a lot with my family and um, past generations and what they've faced in moments that they've lived through, you know, talking with my dad who grew up during, uh, he was born in the 50s, so grew up during the first uh, civil, uh, through the civil rights movement and hearing his reflections on what he's seen and, and what came from, from that movement and, and therefore what can come from this current new civil rights movement that we're, that we're in right now with the Black Lives Matter movement and all the social upheaval that comes with it and thinking about um, my great-grandfather, David Dwight I, uh, who had bombs literally placed at his house. Um, and at a local polling place because of work that he was doing to register Black people to vote. And what amazing things have come from that, even as there's so much further to go. Uh, and so there's an incredible um, capacity that humans have, and I believe in that. This show is produced by me, Jalian Yang, and my co-producer, Lauren Brown. This episode was produced with the help of Lindy Drew, lead storyteller and co-founder of Humans of St. Louis, which is a paid content partner of Navigate STL Schools and Ford through Ferguson. As always, We Live Here's coverage remains independent. To access data about St. Louis area schools or connect to a school navigator, visit navigatestlschools.org. To learn more about the educational landscape of the St. Louis region and how to address its inequities, check out the Still Separate, Still Unequal tool at stillunequal.org. From St. Louis Public Radio and PRX, this is We Live Here. Support for this podcast comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.